This is lesson number six in our church government's curricula, and we're calling this the Office of Pastor Part 3, specifically New Testament Pastors. We've been teaching on church governments because it's important to understand the authority given to the local church. Jesus Christ said in the Great Commission, All power and authority has been given unto me. Now you go. He also said in Matthew 16, uh, Upon this rock will I build my church. And so you see some, from some of the things Jesus Christ said that it takes authority to build the church. And once the church is built, He has sealed authority in the local church. And that's what these lessons are proving and showing how authority is delegated in the local church, how things work. And we have come upon this subject of the executive form of church governance and polity. And we have seen that the executive of any local church is the pastor. That is the office that is over the local church. There is always somebody over any institution. The, institu the, the, the person over the institution of a university is called the president. Over a subdivided part of the university, like the School of Geology, you have the dean. He is the principal, the, exec, uh, the executive over the, the, the school. Uh, you get into a high school, you have a principal. And the guy or the lady that is over all the schools in the district is called the superintendent. In the local city, it's called the mayor. In the police or fire hall, it's called the chief. And we, in every institution of life, even if you get into these uh, male fraternities, you have the poobah or whatever, I don't know. You got the guy who's on top of the local fraternity, whether uh, it's the, uh, the Lodge of Odd Fellows or the, uh, the Masons or Moose's Lodge or whatever. There's always somebody who's in charge. The executive over the local church is the pastor. He is the one who is over it. It's not the deacons. It's not the elders, though a pastor can be an elder and a, and a pastor is an elder, but not every elder is a pastor. It's not even bishops. Uh, now, a pastor is a bishop, but not every bishop is a pastor. A bishop, all a bishop is, according to the Greek, is an overseer. You could be a bishop, and you're, you're bishoping over the children's church. You're not the bishop over the church. You're the bishop over children's church. You can be a bishop over the choir. You oversee the choir for your pastor. You could be a bishop over security in the church. You could be a bishop over the worship team or a bishop over the youth. But in the end, you are not the single bishop over the local church. You're an under bishop. And so we've been looking at all this and we're chasing this thread called authority through all of it. And that has brought us to the local pastor. We have studied first the natural allegory in pastors in general. Then we looked at Old Testament pastors and we were proving that the oldest office in the entire Bible used to lead God's people is pastors, not prophet, but it is pastor. The first pastor was Moses. He was referred to as a pastor more than he was ever referred to as a prophet. In fact, his, his first job he ever had outside of Egypt when he left the world was pastoring sheep. And then he continued to pastor sheep the rest of his life. He spent two-thirds of his life pastoring sheep, the first third in Egypt, living, how to, living and learning how to be a pagan. And so uh, we have pastors well-established, and we saw in our previous lesson all the job descriptions and all the requirements and all the activities of an Old Testament pastor. That brings us now to this lesson and the New Testament pastor. The reason we are answering the question, why is there not many references to the New Testament pastor when, by and large, the office of pastor is the most widely accepted of church offices in the entire world? How come the New Testament doesn't say much about it? I just read an article about the Reverend Billy Graham concerning our election season, and they said it was like it was one of the secular media sites, and they said, Billy Graham, America's greatest pastor. Even the heathen know what a pastor is. Of course, he's not a pastor, but he's always held that title. He's America's pastor. He was more of a spiritual mentor to most of the presidents. Every president, I think back to Eisenhower, he's known every president, was closest with LBJ, but he's truthfully an evangelist. But even the heathen know he's a pastor. Or they, they know that office. How come pastors are so widely accepted, yet the New Testament says so little about it? And we have proven that it's because it's so thoroughly established in the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over and over again. So that brings us now to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about a pastor? And how does a New Testament pastor differ from an Old Testament pastor? So that's what this lesson's all about. Let's jump into it and look. We have previously ascertained through the scriptures that an executive form of government is the only biblical acceptable form of church government. Having established this fact, we continue our study of the New Testament church's local executive 
the pastor. We've proven very, very thoroughly it's not biblical to have a congregational style of government. You don't find a single example of voting in the entire Bible. That was made up in America about the time we birthed our Constitution and our Democratic Republic. So that wasn't breathed by God in Bible times. It was made up by revolutionaries. And I'm not against our Democratic Republic. It's the best form of government on the planet. It just isn't God's form of government. It's a good government to rule a nation, but not the kingdom. In the kingdom, we're a Christocracy, Jesus Christ. Truthfully, we're a Holy Ghost monarchy. Jesus is king, and he delegates through the Holy Spirit. We are not a democracy. We are a Christocracy. The Old Testament thoroughly establishes the office of the pastor, also known as the principle of the flock. I love that term. The powers and responsibilities of a pastor, as established in the Old Testament, not Old Covenant. And there's a difference between Old Testament and Old Covenant. These powers and responsibilities of a pastor are only slightly changed as we cross over into the New Testament. And let me briefly explain the difference between Old Covenant and Old Testament. The Old Testament is Genesis to Malachi. That's the Old Testament. The Old Covenant was not established until Moses. So everything in the Old Testament is not Old Covenant. One of the popular misnomers or poor doctrines is, well, tithing is Old Covenant. No, it's Old Testament, but it's not Old Covenant. Tithing is before the law. Abraham, the father of our faith, started it. And it was continued through his lineage when his lineage became millions of people in Egypt. And they continued to tithe to the Almighty. Moses comes along with the law and says, if you're going to do this, these are some rules. This is how to do it. Don't let anybody say, well, we're free from the Old Testament. You're not free from the Old Testament. Worship's Old Testament. Praise is Old Testament. Living clean is Old Testament. Don't be a homosexual is Old Testament. Don't murder is Old Testament. Don't lie. And if we're free from these things, then if we're free from the Old Testament, then we're free from lying. We, we can lie all we want. We can be homosexual all we want. We can commit adultery all we want. We don't have to worship God. We don't have to serve God. Evangelism is Old Testament. Actually, evangelism is Old Covenant. Are we free from that? No, we are built upon the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and we are built upon better promises. So it's as though we come through the cross, and everything that was there gets carried over and magnified with the blood of Jesus. We worship now in spirit and in truth. We tithe now with a joyful heart. We evangelize with the power of the Holy Ghost. We live clean through the blood of Jesus. Everything they did on the Old Covenant, apart from the sacrifices, we do now, but with more power. The only thing that was done away with or fulfilled on the cross was the sacrifices. Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. That's all that is stopped, the sacrifice for sin and the rituals. Everything else carries through. There are uh, uh, 613 Old Testament commandments. There are 1,080 New Testament commandments. And many of those Old Testament commandments reappear in the New Testament. I'm currently going through my list of the 613 mitzah, which is the Hebrew word for law. And most of them, probably over half of them, reappear in the New Testament. Uh, the ones that don't are sacrificial and rituals and, and water purifications. But see, all that is a type and shadow of that which we have now. So there's huge lessons to be taught on those things, but we just cover it with a little parenthetical parentheses there. Old Testament, not Old Covenant. So the powers and the authorities of a pastor only slightly change as we come into the New Covenant. Let's first look at some differences. Old Testament pastors often operated as political leaders. That's Old Testament. This was the case with the judges and the kings. They were political rulers. New Testament pastors are not leaders on the political level. I'm not a mayor. I'm not a judge in the court system. I'm not a police chief. Though if that was my secular job, if I was bivocational, I could do both. But as a pastor, my office of pastor is not acting as a chief of police. My office of pastor is not to be a political judge. My office of pastor is not also that of mayor. If I was a bivocational judge, I, a bivocational pastor, I might also be a police officer and work my way up to chief, but that's separate and distinct from the office of pastor. David was a king. That would be like a president, but he was also a pastor. He was also a priest. He was also a prophet, but he was a king. He led God's people, and in that day, God's people was a nation. 
And that's one of the things that has made Israel so unique throughout the millennia. Never, and even the psalmist said it, never has there been a people like the Jews. And never will there ever be again. Even the church is different from the body, from the body of Israel. Because the body of Israel is a nationalistic people that God ruled over as a king and a judge and a lawgiver. But the church is something different altogether. And so the Old Testament pastors operate as political leaders, but New Testament pastors do not have that authority. We lost that, or in a sense we grew out of that, because now we're local bodies, we're not one nation. All right, you follow that? New Testament pastors are not leaders on the political level. Rather, they lead the flo local flock known in the New Testament as a church. So we lead the local body. We don't lead a national body. We lead a local body. Old Testament pastors weren't focused so much on teaching as they were on governing. So there's another difference. Uh, they, they weren't so much the teachers like we know them to be today. They led the people, but you had priests that did, stood up and did a lot of the law giving and a lot of the teaching. There weren't necessarily uh, schools like we understand them today, like seminaries. There weren't exactly Sunday schools under the Old Covenant. Once a year, they would stand up all day and the entire law would be read to them and they were expected to go home and do it and study the scriptures on their own. But they, uh, Old Testament pastors were not necessarily teachers like we know them to be. New Testament pastors teach more than they govern. So there's a difference. Thirdly, Old Testament pastors often led the people in natural battles. Uh, we know that with Joshua, Moses, David, he was a mighty man of war. Some of your other, Jehoshaphat led a battle. He was a little unorthodox. He put the musicians out first. That'll clean up your worship team real quick. <laughs> you bunch of hippie worship leaders, you get out there and you stare down those AK-47s and sing your heart out. Well, I've just been faking it. I know. Go home. Let's get the real worshipers out there. All these political, all these political pastors, if we can use that term and not confuse it with modern politics, they led natural battles. They, their job was to suppress the Canaanites. Truthfully, the commandment was annihilate them. That seems a little brutal, but some theologians have postulated that there was uh, Rephidim and Nephilim blood still in those people. If you believe in that line of theology, some of them were still giants because they had demon seed in them. That, that's a whole other study that we don't fool with too deeply. That's why God said annihilate them. Some of them were left over from the Nephilim from after the flood. You can chase that if you want. You better just go to church, pay your tithe, and tell somebody about Jesus. There's all these reasons why. Why was God so brutal? Because they were pagans. The short of it is they were pagans, and God knew they weren't going to repent, except for a few that did, like Rahab, like Ruth. And when they truly did repent, God had mercy on them. But the rest of them, they didn't. So God said, if you don't wipe them out, they will ruin you and turn you aside to other gods. And that's what they did because they didn't obey God to the full. These Old Testament pastors, they were men of war. Gideon, all the judges, their ministries were defined by war. We don't do that in the New Testament. That's called a militia. <laughs> and in America, if, if your church is mil militant, you end up on some FBI watch list. Now, we're not against our Constitution and the right to keep and bear arms. We're not against hunting or having fun, just target shooting. But we're not militant like that. We're not trying to plan a coup to overthrow our government. We pray for our government. So there's a big difference. In the New Testament, pastors don't lead natural battles like that. I'm not taking our Saturdays to train our men how to clear a room and how to use flashbangs and how to shoot twice in the heart while taking over a government building. That's insane. That, that's, you need to go to prison for that kind of stuff. <laughs> New Testament pastors rarely lead natural battles. You know, if there is a natural battle, it might be, I will be in court with you to support you. That might be the closest you get to a natural battle. Or, let's go deal with that bully picking on your son. Or, hey, enough of this. It might just be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But New Testament pastors are constantly engaged in leading the local flock in spiritual battles. Corporate prayer is spiritual battle. Uh, counseling in the office might be a spiritual battle. We're trying to save your marriage. That might be a spiritual battle. We might be trying to save your teenager. So we'll come together and fast and pray. Or we stand in faith together. We, we teach you how to get the victory. We pray. We lay hands on people. That's spiritual battle. Even just ministry. In the New Testament, in this day and age, is constant spiritual battle. 
We, we now take spiritual land. In Joshua's day, they took natural land. And the Lord told Joshua, there is more land to possess. Now we know in the spirit, there is more land to possess. With Abraham, anywhere he walked, God gave it to him. Uh, in the spirit, anywhere we walk, God gives it to us. He's not going to, we can't go walk on the city county building and God uh, tender it over to us. And we, we, the church, own the property in the building. That's not going to happen. But we can walk there in the spirit, so to speak. Go there in prayer and possess it in prayer for the kingdom and pray away perversion and pray righteous judges in and pray a righteous mayor in. Our thing now is all spiritual. We're not literally swinging swords. We're not really cutting the heads off of our enemies. We're not cutting the heads off of Gog or Magog. Uh, we are cutting the heads off the enemy though. We are casting down principalities and powers. That is the extent of any warfare we do through prayer. We swing the sword of the Spirit. So we're just showing you differences, what got lost or what was moved beyond from the Old Testament to the New Testament concerning the office of a pastor. But the neat thing is that Corinthians 11 tells us uh, that these things, are, or 10, tells us that these things were written as an example and a type and a shadow for us so that we would not be like them, but we could be better. All right? So there's allegory to all of that. So let's look at some similarities. Both Old and New Testament pastors are God-ordained leaders. Praise God for it. Ephesians 4.11 is the best and single most powerful verse in the New Testament concerning a pastor. And it says that when Jesus Christ ascended on high, He gave gifts unto men, and He gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That's quoted from the book of Psalms. The psalmist saw that coming. It didn't say what the gifts would be. That took Paul's revelation. But the gifts include pastors. And as soon as the Hebrew converts to, Je to Jesus Christ heard it, they said, oh, we know what a pastor is. Praise God, we still get those. And so one of the things a New Testament pastor is, is a gift given to the New Testament church, God's flock. Verse 12 says, to perfect the saints. So even pastors in the New Testament are God-ordained. In a sense, God still comes to pastors like He came to Moses and said, Lead my people. Like He said to Gideon, Deliver my people. Like He said to David, Feed my people. We still have that neat calling. Both Old and New Testament pastors are equipped and anointed to accomplish God's will. Every entity, every organization, every body, whether it's a local church body, a body of a fraternity, a body of a, of a congress must have a head. You cut the head off of anything and it withers and jiggles and bleeds and it dies. If there is no head, if there is no vision, the people perish. And so God has put uh, leadership in the church so it accomplishes things. In both Old and New Testament, God will speak first and foremost to the pastors concerning the direction for the flock before He will speak to the congregation. If you remember in Numbers, Moses was the leader. He was the head. And Miriam and Aaron said, God should talk to us first. Does, does God not only talk to Moses, doesn't He talk to us? And uh, apparently God was not talking to them. Because when God did talk to them, He revealed how angry He was with them. So yeah, they did hear from God. But it was not a good thing. They proved how spiritually dim they really were. They stepped out of their boundary. We know that it's pretty neat because in those three you see Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, all siblings. Moses being the pastor, Miriam being the prophet or prophetess, and Aaron being the priest. You see the fullness there kind of demonstrated. Jesus Christ came along, he was prophet, he was a priest, he's the good shepherd, the king, uh, the good shepherd, and now he's our king. Right there you, you had the, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ demonstrated in three beings, and it's wise to stay in your office. One of the things that's scary that I see as a pastor is we have evangelists trying to be pastors. And they have a heart for people and they can draw a crowd, but they're not equipped to perfect the crowd. They're not equipped to pastor the crowd. They're not equipped to train the crowd. They're only equipped to draw a crowd and give them Jesus. And any church that has no depth to it, it may end up being that the pastor is not truly a pastor. He may just be an evangelist he should kindly step aside and turn the church over to a true pastor who will feed the flock with wisdom and truth. And unfortunately, it may be that a lot of the seeker-friendly churches, their pastors are not true pastors. They're just evangelists who want to get people saved. 
I don't fault the hearts of a lot of seeker-friendly pastors. They have good hearts. They want to have people come. But once they get them there, they don't have a clue what to do with them. Once you have them there, you got to feed them. you got to mature them. you got to develop them. The people, final similarity here before we move on to other stuff. The people voted neither Old nor New Testament pastors into office. Paul set both Titus and Timothy in as the pastors over their respective churches. So both Old Testament and New Testament, not a single pastor was ever voted on. Period. Uh, that kind of asked the question, where did the church come up with that and why are we still doing it? It's not Bible. You are picking leadership by unbiblical terms. You are picking leadership by unbiblical means. And when you pick leadership without the use and instruction of the Bible, you are destined to have problems. As one minister just shared with us, he said the biggest controversy doctrinally is not supernatural stuff, healing or gifts of the Spirit. The biggest doctrinal uh, controversy is always church governments because it's always a power struggle. Who's in charge and who isn't? Let's look at New Testament job description. And this is where we're really going to see specifically what the New Testament says about a New Testament pastor. And that's going to help you. Uh, feeding. This, if we're going to organize them or order them, this may be the critical one. Feeding. Feeding refers to the continual teaching of the Word of God. Pastors keep their flock spiritually healthy by feeding them a steady diet of the Word. I'm going to read that again. Pastors keep their flock spiritually healthy by feeding them a steady diet of the Word. Not opinion, not politics, not fashion, we might add not gimmicks, but a steady diet of the Word of God. One of the biggest complaints about seeker-friendly churches that I hear is that I'm not being fed. I'm just not being fed. My, my, my backslidden spouse loves it, but I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed. And unfortunately, those Christians stay there because they don't know how to leave. They don't have the strength to leave. They don't have the spiritual strength or fortitude because they've not been fed. They've been starved. Therefore, they can't escape. POWs were that way. POWs didn't have the strength to escape their imprisonment. And I, and I believe the devil has worked covertly to make churches, in a sense, to some degree, a POW camp where the saints are so spiritually malnourished, they know they're dying, but they haven't got the strength to break out. You don't need a big barbed wire fence when they're too weak to climb over it. You don't need a big prison compound when they're too weak to dig under it. And so uh, most of the time, my pastor has taught me, the devil will love to keep a Christian in a dead, seeker-friendly, watered-down church because the devil can just let them dry out there. They're not even a threat to the kingdom. A strong pastor, a biblical pastor, will keep his sheep fat and healthy through the teaching of the uncompromised Word of God. Now, yes, not everybody will want to go to that church. But not everybody wanted to go to heaven with Jesus either. And so it's not our job as pastors to talk you into heaven. If you want them, great. If you don't, you perish. We just preach the word. Pastor Vaughn taught me my job is not to build this church. My job is to preach the gospel. Jesus builds the church. When we as pastors try to help God, we fail. So that's uh, feeding. And we've got some scriptures there you can look at. John 21, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Acts 20, 28 says, um, uh, to take the oversight and feed the flock which the Lord has given you. 1 Peter 5, 2 says the same thing. Feed the flock which the Lord has given you. Our next job description for a New Testament pastor is overseeing. Overseeing refers to the responsibility of managing the activities within the local church, including the classes, the departments, the outreaches, etc. A, a New Testament pastor is, is tasked with oversight. In fact, that's where the term bishop comes in. The term bishop means overseer. The Greek word is episkopos, is where we get the term episcopal. All pastors are bishops, but not every bishop is a pastor. Uh, Timothy was the first bishop over Ephesus, or first pastor. Titus was a bishop or an overseer of Ephesus. Epaphroditus was a bishop or an overseer of Philippi. These men oversaw it. But even as a bishop, Paul tasked Titus and Timothy with ordaining other bishops. Why? To help underneath him. And so the job of a pastor is oversight. It's not the deacon's board. In some churches, the deacon board oversees everything. What do a bunch of businessmen with bad marriages know about the church? 
nothing. They're struggling with porn at home. They can't even raise their kids right, but they want to tell the holy man of God who has the calling, who went to seminary, who went to Bible school, how to do things. That is heresy. That is such a mockery to the kingdom, and it shows a total lack of knowledge of the Bible and scripture study. Overseeing includes looking out for the spiritual health of the sheep who submit to the headship of the local shepherd. Pastors are not authorized to oversee your private life or your home. What you do at home is your business. I don't tell you what to wear. I just tell you don't dress like a floozy in my church. I don't tell you what to wear at home. I don't tell you what to watch on television, but we do teach a standard and you should take it home. But I'm not going to come by your house, peek in the window and see how you live. I'm not going to stick my head in your car and listen to what kind of music. That's between you and God. But now you do need to know if it's sinful and you bring it into my congregation, it will get preached at. What you do with it after that's between you and God. I don't oversee your, your checkbook, but I will teach you financial stewardship and it is wise to have a budget. But I'm not going to police you. I don't have time to police you. We deal in spiritual and eternal things. If you want to fail naturally, that's your problem. We'll give you wisdom to help, but if you don't want to do anything with it, it it's your fault. Even the psalmist said, He leadeth me beside still waters. But it didn't say He forces me to drink. Pastors can teach you how to do better in your private life, but ultimately if you fail, it will be your fault. However, if your private life begins to sinfully affect the local fold, the pastor will deal with your private life. And sometimes it will be dealt with publicly. If your private life gets to be overly sinful, it will be dealt with publicly. You see that from Exodus forward. With uh, the gainsaying of Korah, they conspired in private in their tents. But when they brought it to the congregation, they went to hell alive in front of everybody. And those that conspired with them, they did it in private, but fire came down in the midst of the whole congregation and consumed them alive. Even Timothy says, those that sin, open, uh, so those that sin rebuke openly that others may fear. So we're not going to go home and, and look for things in your home to preach against. But if we are up here as a spirit-filled, a true spirit-filled pastor, not one that just claims to be, but a true spirit-filled pastor, and we pick up on your sin and the Lord deals with us to teach on it or against it, we will. And you may feel like we're bossing you, and we are. <laughs> we're telling you to do the Bible. But that's why we assume you come to church, because you want to be taught how to do the Scriptures. So one of the, the second job description and qualities of a good local pastor is he does oversee not just the natural operations and administrations of the facility and the ministry, but also he oversees your soul. Hebrews 13 says that we, we are bishops of your soul. We oversee your soul. We can say, you know, Miss Carrie looks depressed. I should probably preach on joy and hope. Uh, Miss Kate, she looks to be sad. Let me preach on, on hope and peace. And Mr. Will looks stressed. Let me preach on God will be there for you. So we oversee your soul, and if I've got a whole bunch of sad people on a Sunday morning, my message goes out the window, and I oversee your soul, and I give you what you need. I don't just go with some canned donut message that will make you like me. If I'm worried about you liking me, that might be weird. I don't think any shepherd in the natural allegory wants his sheep to love him. What, kind of, what does that say about a grown, burly shepherd, a man? My sheep... They love me. They climb in my lap. That's kind of weird. Even in America, when your little lap dog's your best friend, we deem that as weird. And so we're not so much concerned about you liking us. We want to make sure you stay right with Jesus Christ. Amen. Protecting. That's another job description for a New Testament pastor. Just as a natural shepherd must watch out for wolves, cougars, dogs, and other predators that would threaten his flock, so must a supernatural church pastor watch out for the spiritual predators that would attack his local church. That's part of our job description. These would include perverts, deviants, cons, false preachers, Jezebels, insurrectionists, rebels, and Judases. We might also throw businessmen in there, but that might fall under the con category. One of the jobs of a local pastor is to make sure people don't come in here because the Bible talks about wolves being people, people being wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in here and baa like a sheep but growl like a wolf. 
Uh, one of the jobs a pastor is anointed to do is look at people in his congregation and judge them. And uh, sometimes you guys, if you, you can learn a lot. If you'll watch me after a service, I'll be up here. I might even be talking to you, but I may be only 50% listening to you because somebody's back there talking to one of my sheep. And on the inside, I'm not happy. And I, I may honestly just nod you off because you'll be fine, but I'm worried about that guy. What is he doing talking to that college kid? What is that new guy doing talking to one of my family members? Something's not right over there. And I just mark them. And if they come back, I judge them again in the spirit. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, having been absent in the body, I have already judged in the spirit. And so what we do is if they come back, we let them know who's in charge. In fact, I just found out that we had a visitor Sunday morning, came in, just kind of laid back, arrogant. And uh, I was somehow able to run him off before we even started announcements just by making a declaration of what kind of church we are and we are not. And they said, after that, uh, somebody told me after that, Pastor, they just got up and left. I said, I didn't even see them. I heard about them. Oh, Pastor, they came in and you got to talking about we're not a donut church. We're not a coffee sipping church. We're not a laid back hippie church. We preach holiness and the move of God and the move of Jesus Christ. And when I was done with that, they got up and walked out the door before the announcements even started. They were gone before worship. That was easy. I didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> That's protection, though. If he's not here to walk in, in unity with us, how can two walk together except they be in agreement? All we did was advertise what we are, and he said in his heart, That's not what I am. That's not what I want. It's okay if what we are you're not, but you want to be. I, I, I'm not clean, but I want to be. Likewise, Sunday night, we had that homeless man come in. Smelled horrible, but had just been saved a few days. Genuinely born again. Reeked to high heaven. I had to breathe out of my mouth. Gave him several hugs. We blessed him. He wept through the service. He said, if you promise not to kick me out, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I said, yeah. He said, I've been homeless 15 years. He said, I just went across the street to the big church and I sat back there and people just stared at me and avoided me. He said, and I got so hurt, I left and I was going to just go back. He said, but I looked across the street and saw your church and walked in. He said, and that man came over and loved on me like, like I'd always been here. And he stuck around for a three-hour service Sunday night. He knew he wasn't clean. He knew he was a baby Christian, but, but he knew this is what he wanted. And we accepted him. And we, we took him down. We bought him some new clothes. We got him a shower. We fed him. We gave him some money. He's trying to get home to Wyoming. And so we don't care what you are, but as long as that heart's okay, you're okay. But you come in smelling like a million bucks, looking like a million bucks, but your heart growls, I will thump you with my rod and pull my sheep back with my staff and we will run you out of here. That's the job of a good pastor. Anytime churches start courting controversy like perversion in the children's ministry or the youth leader starts sleeping with the youth, the shepherd has fallen asleep or he may not even be a true shepherd. When a shepherd is led by the Holy Ghost, the church will always avoid controversy. But when the shepherd just looks at his sheep like cash cows, that church will court controversy and wolves will, will slip in because they'll know they're welcomed and nothing will be done. Too many pastors lack a backbone to stand and defend their sheep. I will be judged for how I take care of my sheep. And I will not get there and have done a poor job. Even if we just have a church of 25 when Jesus comes back and the Lord will say, well, I don't judge you for having a small church. I judge you because you had strong sheep and you ran out everybody that should have been run out. Too many folks are trying to gather people to themselves to feel good about their little ego. They have little man syndrome, little preacher syndrome. So protecting. Shepherds must often fight these predators off with the word. And you should know that defending the sheep can get pretty ugly at times. Pretty ugly. Around here, folks are so used to it. Even when they're in the children's church or the bed babies watching it on service, and I get to preach in a hard direction, they'll even say, do we have any visitors tonight? Who is he talking to? Who just walked in? Because <laughs> they no longer is the shepherd carrying his shepherd's staff. He set it aside, and now he's got the club. He's got the rod that comforts me. That rod is what you beat wolves with, and that brings comfort. And the sheep will look up, uh-oh, pastor's put his staff down. He's got the club out. There must be trouble in the flock. And you just see the shepherd slowly. He just ignores all the sheep. He just slowly walks through them, looking to grab that wolf by the nap of his neck and just club them. <laughs> Thank God for that authority. 
I wish more pastors would do it. We'd have stronger sheep. A living example. Of course, we have scriptures there going back to protecting. There are scriptures there. Acts 20, 29 through 31. Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. After my departing, grievous wolves shall come in, not sparing the flock. Well, you got to provide protection. When we go out of the country, I tell the elders, if their wolf comes in, do not spare the wolf. Because Paul said they won't spare the flock. I said, if you make a big mess dealing with them, I'll clean it up. But you protect these sheep. Rebuke them. Kill a service if you have to. Just make a big scene. Throw them out. If somebody comes in here, deal with them hastily if you have to. But you protect my sheep. And I'll fix the mess when I get back. That's, that's the instructions we leave when we go. Hebrews 13, 17 says they, give, they must protect you giving oversight. So that's protecting. Living example, New Testament pastors must be led by, uh, must be, must lead by example. The local pastor should be a holy example set forth by their congregation. They should be a holy example set forth, but, excuse me, before their congregation. Their entire life should be a living epistle worth reading and replicating. They should strive to be examples in their words, their lifestyle, their love, their attitude, their faith, and their purity. A pastor should have a lifestyle that, should someone choose to emulate, would cause them to glorify Jesus Christ. This only comes by walking with God closer than anyone else in the church. So I would say this, the pastor should have the closest walk with God of anyone in the church. The pastor should know the Bible better than anybody in the church. And if he does, it can't help but come out. So therefore, I judge and question seeker-friendly pastors. If they truly walk with God, and truly studied the scriptures, then when they stood in front of their people, it wouldn't help but come out. But as it is, these men don't put pure word out, so I wonder what are they truly studying in private? Are they chasing gimmicks? What's going on here? Training. Several scriptures there living as an example. Training. Training is different than teaching, but pastors train as part of our job description according to the New Testament. Most Christians like some good teaching. Very few Christians will actually tolerate and submit to training. But the job of a pastor is to train up leaders. The job of a pastor is to train up new ministers. The job of a pastor is to train his replacement. Not to have a, not to have a bunch of chubby deacons vote on his replacement. The true job of every biblical leader is to train up their replacement. Moses trained up Joshua. Then after them came the judges. David trained up his replacement, Solomon. Elijah trained up his replacement, Elisha. Paul trained up his replacements, Timothy, Titus, Tychicus, Epaphroditus. He, he, you're responsible for training your replacement. Training requires correction, rebuking, practice, participation, and discipline. Teaching merely requires an attention span. So training requires more than teaching. Unfortunately, many Christians just want to be taught. They don't want to be trained. They just want to go home with puffy heads of knowledge. But to be trained is to be made into a disciple. Pastors are called to train up strong Christians. So we've got several verses there from the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. Ordaining leaders, I've got to move along here. According to the New Testament epistles, it is the local pastor who raises up and ordains leaders in the local church. Without a pastor, you will not be able to be an elder. Without a pastor, you will not be able to be a bishop. Without a pastor, you are not qualified to be a deacon. Deacons don't get voted on. Deacons are sure that according to Acts 6, the people recognize these are holy people. But then it's the leadership, the pastors, the apostles that lay their hands on them and ordain them. Most churches still vote on their deacons and it becomes a politicking thing. Actually, Paul told the Corinthian church, When I come unto you, I do not want to find you as I would right now, full of political jockeying. In the, that's what it says in the Greek. Full of political jockeying. And that's, that's the Greek word, it's translated strife. But the actual Greek word means political jockeying. That's a lot of denominational churches, though. The offices of elder, bishop, and deacon work together to help the local pastor manage and operate the local church. So that's part of ordaining leaders. The pastor raises up leaders to help him. I wish we could get that more and more American churches. Pastors are still the principal of the flock. They are God-ordained authority in the local church. So right there, you have one, two, three, four, five, six job descriptions of a New Testament pastor. Let me go really quickly through now your responsibility towards your pastor. Just as a pastor will be judged for how he cared for the Lord's sheep, 
so too will the Lord's sheep be judged for how they cared for their pastor. So just like I'll be judged for how I take care of you, sheep will be judged for how they care for their pastor. Proverbs tells us that the shepherd is to partake of the lamb's wool and to even take the goat's milk. So there is a symbiotic relationship there between the shepherd and his fold. And oftentimes some sheep make the ultimate sacrifice and they become the barbecue. And that's biblical too. Now, not that we're spiritual cannibals, but there's a sacrifice that goes on. Paul even told the Hebrew Christians, he said, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Why were they spoiled? So Paul could keep preaching. Uh, Never forget your pastor has been given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a gift. Below are some ways to treat your pastor and is a list of your responsibilities toward the pastor the Lord has given you. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and they admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So from those two verses, we bring three points out. Number one, you should know your pastor. And if you know them, they should know you. Some folks, they say, so-and-so is my pastor, but if he doesn't know you, I don't think he's your pastor. He might be the preacher you listen to one Sunday morning a month, but that's not your pastor. For someone to actually be your pastor, there's a relationship there. That's why I really think you get into trouble when you start growing churches of two and 3,000 because now all you are is an executive pastor and you've got under-shepherds that know the people when you truly don't. And that there's a lot, of, a lot of things that get dangerous there. Even my cousin, who's been a part of mega churches, the smallest church he's ever been a part of was two or 3,000. The medium church was 10,000. The church he just came from was 38,000. And he's told me, he, over, he's been doing this 20 years. Chris, I cannot believe this is the will of God. I cannot believe this thing. And he's a, he's a Baptist. I, and he's worked in the biggest Baptist churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. He said, I can't believe this is the will of God. There is no way you can pastor this many people. There's no way you can know it. We're, we're running cities here. And the people just come and go. I was at, the, at his one church campus, and they, it's like a mall. It's a beautiful facility, and God's in that place. You can feel it, feel it. And they have free Wi-Fi and coffee bars, and they have a cafeteria, and you can swipe your debit card, and it's fancy. The, the wedding chapel seats 700. That's the wedding chapel. <laughs> and there's a guy in the lobby surfing the Internet for Wi-Fi. And I honestly, I looked at him. I said, I wonder if he's looking at porn here in the church lobby. He can't pastor when you've got a campus of 38,000 people. So to know them, but they know you. You ever read the end of the epistles? How many people does Paul greet? So many, dozens. Tell so-and-so hello. Tell so-and-so hello. So-and-so's with me. He says hello. The last chapter of every epistle, just about, at least half of it's greetings to and from people. They knew Paul and Paul knew them. It wasn't just the masses following a preacher who has a glam, uh, fame and glory. So you got to know them. Not buddy-buddy knowledge, but know their heart, their vision. Understand their personality, their likes and dislikes. This can be done without hanging out. It can be done through prayer and by watching and listening. And it really can be done just by serving in the local church. Number two, esteem them highly for their work's sake. So this is how you can, your responsibility towards your pastor. We are not taught to esteem them highly for their doctrine's sake, but for their work's sake. So you don't get mad over doctrinal differences. The Bible doesn't say esteem them highly because you love their doctrine. Esteem them highly because of what they're doing for the kingdom. No minister has perfect doctrine. If you look for holes, you will find some. Esteem and honor them for their labor for God. Number three, be at peace. Once you know your pastor, once you esteem them for their work's sake, you'll be at peace. You don't care how goofy you think the doctrine is. So there's two things you disagree with. What about the 9,362 things they taught you? Just be at peace. Don't let the leader be a source of strife and contention. Someone will love your pastor more than you, so don't run their leader down. You may end up with a bloody nose. When you ran David down, his men killed you. When even Absalom, he betrayed his father and David wanted to protect his boy and Joab said he's not worthy of protecting. Look at him hanging there like a pinata from his hair. Can't even ride a donkey. Boys, give me some spears. And they played sword pinata with Absalom because Joab loved David more than his own son did. And they hacked him to pieces as he hung there and twitched. 
And then they went and buried him and wouldn't tell anybody where they buried him because they said nobody will honor that man. He's not honorable. He's not worthy of it. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Quickly now. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, and the younger sisters with all purity. And then number four, you're not to rebuke a pastor. We are commanded to never rebuke a leadership, but to call them near as we would our own father. Fathers and leaders can and will be wrong, but rebuking them is also wrong. You don't talk to the pastor you disagree with like a dog. You will be wrong, 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 wrong. Even if what you're right about, you're right about. The way you approach the matter will make you dead wrong. There's too many Bible examples for, of that to go, go through it. So just know, if there's something wrong, you pray. And you pray and you pray. It might just be perspective. The problem with one sheep is that they only see things from their perspective. And a pastor deals with 360 degrees of perspective. And you may only get your angle. And your angle might be right, but he's having to balance 25 things over here. And what you see as being wrong is the least of his concerns. He might already know it's wrong. But to save these 19 sheep over here in this marriage and these three kids, he's overlooking this on purpose. Because he's trying to save 99 sheep. And you're the one giving him the problem. So you got to... You, you, you just... Most of the time it's just perspective. Pastor's using them and I know they're sleeping around. You don't know what he's been doing with them in private to help them. You don't know how much he's talked to them in private. You don't see that person's heart repenting. Pastor, I did it again. Oh, could you ever use me? Repent. So they're fornicating. You're looking at porn. We're still using you. You're just, you're, you've kept it in the porn arena because you can't find anybody getting in bed with you. And there may be more repentant penitent over fornication than you are your porn addiction. You hypocrite. So it's just not right. You don't know everything. Pray. Just shut up and pray. It'll all work itself out. <laughs> there is proper decorum when dealing with leadership. America doesn't know that so much. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the leaders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So count them worthy of double honor. This is a reference to financial support. Every commentary, every theologian agrees with that, because from there it goes into taking care of them naturally. Giving them their reward. That's a paycheck. Giving the ox what he worked for, which is feed. So you make sure the pastor has a reward and that he's fed well. This is a reference to financial support. The pastor labors like an ox. Let him be rewarded. This is a proper form of honor. The first form of honor is a heart respect in the spirit. The double honor is a natural respect that follows, a natural honor. So double honor refers to two levels of honor. And if you have a, natural, a supernatural honor in your heart, I love my pastor, or I love this apostle, or I love this missionary, then your heart can't help but say, I want to support them. I, want to, I, I honor what they're doing. I want, to, I want to bless them. I want to make sure they can go forth with what they're doing. It's just proper. But when you don't have the proper honor in your heart to begin with, you'll always gripe over money or a gift card or just a natural card, and your heart's not right. Hebrews 13, 17, wrapping up here. Obey them. Uh-oh. Americans hate that. Everybody wants everybody to obey them, but they don't ever want to have to obey anybody else. Right. Obey them that have the rule over you. Yep, rule. That's a military term in the Greek. And submit yourselves. That's one thing our nation is not good at right now. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you are a billy goat, and I have to watch after a billy goat, I may just as soon shoot you. But if you're a little sheep, and you're kind, and you're awesome, I'm going to give you more attention. Every one of us has experienced that. Even teachers, they have their favorite students because they're compliant and they're sweet, and they have those kids that if they never came back, they wouldn't miss them. Pastors are the exact same way. This verse tells us that. Submit to them that they may watch over your soul and rule you with joy. You can make your pastor's job a joy in your life, or you can make your pastor pray you out of his church. And many pastors have prayed people out of their church. And when people left, they counted it an answer to divine prayer. And the sheep thought, oh, I'm so awesome. And the pastor said, hallelujah, Jesus, thank you. I've told one local pastor, I'm so glad you have some of those people because I don't want them. 
And he's always said, thanks a lot, man. I see how this is. I said, look, I'd rather you have them because they're not welcome back at my church. And I told him, I feel sorry for you because they're in your church. And now they don't even go to his church. They're such rebels and billy goats. They're just there to see how much trash they can eat and then puke up. And now they're going to other churches eating trash and puking it up. They're billy goats. They're not sheep. Some of them have a bit wolfish tendencies. So point six, obey them. Don't be rebellious. Obey your godly leadership. Don't obey sin. We're not talking about blind trust here. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, as we say. Don't obey sin and don't obey heresy. If it's biblical and it furthers the gospel, obey it. That's pretty simple. We're going to paint this room. Okay. We're going to stand in the rain and greet visitors. Okay. We're going to go evangelizing. Great. We're, we're going to pray at the altars. Okay. Uh, we're going to sleep with our neighbor's wife. Not okay. It's pretty simple. This is not cultish. It's basic Christianity. Point seven, final point, submit yourselves. We, we, we've underlined all of our points from these verses. Obey them and submit. Now, obey is easy. If you're obeying, you're good. But if you don't want to obey, that's when you submit. Submission begins when you disagree. If you're in agreement, you're not submitting. You're just obeying. But submission is obeying when you disagree. Submission is obeying when you disagree. You have never truly submitted until you disagree. If you agree, you're just walking together. If you disagree with the direction and you submit, now you're walking behind following and trusting. That's submission. Anybody can obey when they agree, but can you obey when you disagree? That's the real test of maturity. I'm sure there are many missions Timothy and Titus and Tychicus were sent on by Paul that they didn't want to do, but they submitted and they went anyway. I'm sure Paul, I'm sure Timothy wanted to stay with Paul, but Paul said, you're staying in Ephesus. I want to go with you. Stay in Ephesus. I'm not ready to pastor. Stay in Ephesus. And then he had to write him two letters encouraging him. You're doing good, son. Titus might have been a little bit more eager to get to Crete because they were a bunch of stiff-necked gluttons and beasts, slow bellies, jerks. But submission begins when you disagree. It's one thing to obey. If, you, if, you, if you're in agreement, it's easy to obey. But if you disagree with the order, not because it's sin, but because you have your opinions, that's when submission starts. Pastor Will and I used to serve at a church in Knoxville, and Pastor Trey had me going door to door. I hated going door to door, but he put me over it. And then he was going to have us do a community day, and I thought it was the dumbest thing ever, because it's just I just wasn't used to it. But I just sucked it up. I submitted, and I led evangelism, and we hit literally thousands of houses for weeks before that vacation Bible school. We had this map of the city and we hit every section of it. We, it might have been over a thousand houses. I don't remember, but we had teams. I didn't want to do it. I regretted it. I, 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 I dreaded it. But we did it every weekend and it was a great success. We got a lot of kids born again through that vacation Bible school. That was my pastor's vision. It was not mine, but God didn't put me in charge to put my vision out there. He put me with my pastor to fulfill his vision. So I submitted and in submitting I obeyed and people came to Jesus. That was my pastor's vision. The entire kingdom is founded on submission. Rebellion is witchcraft. Submit and help the local pastor fulfill the call on your church. Submit, I'm going to say it again, submit and help the local pastor fulfill the call on your church. Father, bless this message. Help us to understand how the church works that we might glorify you. Father, may folks find good pastors. May they serve their local pastor and help those local pastors to feed your sheep with knowledge and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.